Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. If more had been known about dyslexia at the time I went to school, my personal history as regards education might have been a whole lot different. Some of the teachers I met were more into crowd control than teaching. The method most commonly used was the carrot and stick approach to education. Not so much the carrot and stick, it was more the use of the stick, the leather belt and the odd boot just to add variety. I remember one educational genius who lifted me by the front of my pullover with his right hand, slapped me across the face with his left hand and told me, in very unteachably language, I learn you, you little bee. How was it possible to teach any child with behaviour like that? I left school with the literary skills of a chimpanzee, but luckily for me, the good Lord blessed me with a great pair of hands. When I went to the technical school, I was in heaven, with metalwork, woodwork, mechanical drawing, art. Some years later, I started a lovely blacksmithing business, making wine racks, candlesticks and other arty-farty steelwork, with clients such as Kilkenny Design, Shelburne Hotel, Tremolan Castle in the beautiful County Clare, to Blundell's on Fifth Avenue, New York. I always listened to the news on the television and radio, current affairs, programmes and history documentaries. This helped greatly if you were caught in a conversation, as a well-read person will always have an understanding of local and international news. I spent a major part of my life ducking and diving, avoiding anything that involved me having to read in public. From the old excuse, I don't have my reading glasses, to would you look at the size of that print they must really be trying to save on paper. I was that good an actor, Sir Lawrence Olivier, God bless him, was only trotting after me. The tipping point came for me at Shannon Airport, on my way to the United States for a two-week holiday with my son Matthew, who was only 13 years old at the time. I had been to the United States on several occasions, so queuing at passport control did not bother me until, yes, (laughs) there is always an until, until a large burly American civil servant handed me a three-page questionnaire that had to be filled out before boarding the aeroplane. Now I started to sweat blood. I was just unable to read the forms. My son noticed my distress and believe me, I was distressed at this point. Dad, what's wrong, he said. Then I had to admit I wasn't able to read the forms. He took the forms from my hand and read them to me. He filled them out and when he had completed the task, I signed them. That was the day I decided enough was enough. I had to do something about this. The embarrassment of telling your 13-year-old son that he has a reading difficulty was a very difficult brick to swallow. So on my return to Ireland, I discovered the Adult Education Centre. Going back into a classroom situation wasn't easy, but I told myself at least nobody's going to beat you this time. They had a small school in Nelson Street at Thai, and that is where the miracle started. A very nice young lady by the name of Brenda taught me to read. God knows as students go, I was not the sharpest chisel in the toolbox. But in fairness to Brenda, she persisted in her endeavours. What I really like was how she took the time to explain the logic of the spellings of the words in English. 
She showed me the ropes of the words, so it was easy to remember why they are spelt the way they are. We started with texts chosen by her, and then she asked me to pick out books from the library that I'd like to read. First of all, all I had to do was take them home and go through them, come back and tell her a little bit about them. Later on, I got to the point I could read them cover to cover. I described learning to read like painting a picture. You start at the back and you work your way to the front, working out light, shade and other details as you go. Not everyone will see your painting as a masterpiece, but it's your masterpiece. I emerged the far side of it being able to read whatever I wanted. Books, magazines, newspapers. I even do the readings at Mass nowadays. After being bitten by the education bug, I went and did a level 5 communications course for which I received a distinction. After that I was away to the National University of Ireland and picked up a certificate in community development and leadership. If you know somebody that may have difficulty with reading, please introduce them to the adult education people in your town. I can well understand someone of my age being very apprehensive about going back into the classroom. But for me, going from being able to read little bits to standing in front of a congregation at church and reading from the Old and New Testaments, well, it is akin to going from being blind and deaf to seeing and hearing for the first time. I sent a text message to a friend recently. I typed it out and pressed send. Not a big deal, I hear you say, but a few short years ago that would have been impossible for me. So today, if I have to stand and read aloud in a church or some other public building, I'm not the nervous wreck I would have been some years ago. No, today I am smiling to myself, particularly when I remember the ignorance of that long-ago educational genius. The weather was Baltic. My daughter and granddaughter were home from Australia for the first time in three years. A mild dose of Covid rendered us all social pariahs. Corralled together and confined to base with all plans cancelled, it seemed like the perfect time to indulge in some nostalgia by gorging on our old home movies. Himself rigged the old camcorder up to the telly and we gathered around to execute a kind of lucky dip of memories. Our home movies have not only never made the transition to CD or onto a laptop, but they are still on the mini cassette yokes that go into the camera. And not one of them is labelled. So in we dived and passed not one but two evenings by the fire in a haze of reminiscing and laughter as we watched our younger selves on holidays, celebrating birthdays, Christmases and whatnot. Our family life, over its first decade, captured in glorious, wonky, low definition, 
without the benefit of a filter or an edit. The footage was intimate and honest, having an innocence that our current family videos shot on our phones don't have. I started to feel sorry for young parents today who won't know the delicious delight of this kind of entertainment. And then I began to feel sorry for us too, because we probably won't ever capture events on the camcorder again. I mean, you'd be mortified, right? Although maybe in years to come, we might gather around a laptop for a wander into our respective Instagram archives. But somehow, I doubt we will. Social media content is curated and permission sought from participants before being shared. Whereas our camcorder footage was never meant for public airing. And so, it's far more real. Although, if I'm being honest, sometimes it was too real. Watching myself as a young mother, I cringed at how I looked. Let me clarify that. I wasn't that young. I was nearly 40 by the time my youngest was born. But that was no excuse for the me who went to Euro Disney in around about 2003 with a hairstyle and clothes that made me look like a boy, which is how my now adult children described it, or like a woman who had either given up or lost herself, which was how I saw it. The horror of this married with kids version of me was heightened when we looked at footage of our honeymoon. Gee ma, how did you go from looking fab to looking so weird in just five years? Well, I don't know. It's a mystery to me too. All I can assume is that as it coincided with my having a three-year-old, a five-year-old and a young teenager, I was wrecked. Having recently retired from the world of paid work, maybe I had lost who I was. I also looked like I had fallen out with my hairdresser, which didn't help. When I was researching my book about the deliciousness of being an older woman, I discovered that life is a smile, thanks to something called the U-curve of happiness. Because studies have shown that the most difficult decades of our lives are those of midlife. The years when we are coping with young kids, high mortgage repayments and other financial pressures while keeping a career on track are the most difficult and the most stressful. And if ever I wanted proof of this concept, our home movies provided it in spades. Watching this smorgasbord of memories, we were amazed at events we had forgotten. There was one particular party thrown by us at home for a family friend that not one of us had any recollection of whatsoever. Beloved cats, long since departed, meandered curiously in and out of the shots as we called their names to them from the present. Our children's beloved grandparents who are no longer with us feature heavily in these movies too. They came alive again in those hours we spent watching our younger selves taking their presence entirely for granted. It was like taking a warm bath in delicious remembrances. We were all the better for our stroll down a very winding, out-of-sequence memory lane. Covid took its leave and my daughter and granddaughter once again flew south back to Australia, but with the bonds of family strengthened and reinvigorated by those nights by the fireside, reminding ourselves of all that we have shared together over the decades. Myself and himself vowed, yet again, to get our precious home movies transferred to a digital format. There are two or three big boxes of photos to organise too, all equally undated and unorganised. 
But then again, maybe we will leave them that way. Another lucky dip to savour. Tiring of the crush of tourists in Florence's overcrowded thoroughfares, we are on day release from the magnetic pull of galleries, monasteries, churches and museums offered by the city. We set off across the river Arno to Ultrano, a hilly residential haven of sleepy streets and lush gardens, best reached by bicycle from our home swap apartment in the centre of the old city, by cycling illegally down some one-way streets, and turning right at the Galileo Museum, before coming to the Ponte Vecchio, which takes you over the river. Only yesterday, we joined a tour of the museum, conducted by a genial, sharply-dressed professor. Piecing together my hodgepodge knowledge of Latin languages, it was just possible to follow his description of Galileo's early telescopes and instruments for measuring the heavens. As I push my bike up the black marble slabs of an impossibly steep street, my wife says, Galileo lived here, in one of these. She motions to the cluster of modest, two-storey, small-windowed houses lining the way. It is hot, the bicycle heavy, and a cooling wind beckons from the summit. Bricks and mortar can wait for another time, however celebrated their owner. Later, Refreshed by a stroll in the Bobbily Gardens and invigorated by the views from the terraces of the city and the Florentine hills beyond, we wheel the bicycles downhill. I stop to read a menu outside a restaurant and sense that someone is watching me from a house across the road. I turn around. It is Galileo. His features are painted on the wall between two upstairs windows of the family home, silver-haired and bearded, with a stubby nose and an expansive forehead. His eyes are raised, a wry expression on his face. My gaze is drawn to the angle created by the horizontal of the doorstep of the house and the steep gradient of the street. For an instant, I experience a glimmer of understanding, which vanishes, leaving only the echo of a memory. Galileo was born three days after the death of Michelangelo, and died a few months before the birth of Isaac Newton. As an eight-year-old, he moved from Pisa to live in this house in 1572, when his father was appointed musician to the ducal court in the nearby Palazzo Pitti. The young gingerhead, boisterous and rebellious, sat on this very step, playing with his wooden toys, seeing them roll down the hill, triggering his early fascination with movement and the laws of physics. An alleyway at the side of the house takes us to his garden. Here, Galileo must have observed, with his naked eye, in a night sky free from light pollution, the Milky Way, Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter and Saturn. Perhaps he had an inkling that someday 
he would chart the movement of the heavens, which was to become his life's work. A stubborn, persistent student, Galileo taunted his lecturers, mostly friars, showing up their ignorance by asserting, among other jibes, that objects of differing weight, such as hailstones, fell through space at the same rate. In the face of ridicule, he insisted that his analysis held true for a vacuum. You see, said Neil Armstrong, standing on the surface of the moon in July 1969, almost 400 years later, as he let fall a hammer and a feather, Galileo was right. Why are playwrights, from Bertolt Brecht to Tom Stoppard and Michael Frayn, so drawn to this self-made genius? Perhaps because of his humanity and courage, his passionate nature, a longing for knowledge and respect for the truth, which sustained him through all the nastiness that was thrown at him, his meagre professor's salary, inventions stolen by ruthless colleagues, reviled for living unmarried with a fiery mistress, Marina Gambia, and their three children. Galileo was 45 before his brilliance was recognised for his astronomical discoveries, using his superior telescope, which magnified images 32 times, earning him a fortune. He had a knack for public relations and was granted a private audience with Pope Paul V. Even then, a jealous cardinal warned, the Bible is intended to teach us how to go to heaven not how the heavens go. But Galileo could not resist revealing the truth. All is movement. The sun, neither perfect nor static, revolves, its surface disfigured by blemishes. The moon and Venus have phases, and above all, the revolving earth orbits the sun, as Copernicus predicted, not the other way round. This was all too much for his former friend, the then Pope Urban VIII, himself a former astronomer. Urban, furious that Galileo had challenged the established order of the universe, which threatened to destabilize the papacy, handed him over to the Inquisition. Perhaps Urban regretted his impulsive decision, for, during his trial, Galileo, now aged 70, was lodged in a five-bedroomed apartment overlooking the Vatican Gardens with a valet and a cook. Convicted of heresy, what was he to do? The Inquisition meant business. A quarter of a century earlier, the philosopher Giordano Bruno had been burned at the stake in Rome's Campo de Fiore for supporting Copernicus. Ever the survivor, Galileo recanted his findings in the great hall of the Dominican convent of Santa Maria Sopre Minerva. But, even as he fell to his knees, Parroting the words of his confession, he muttered, E pur si muove, and yet it moves. A rebel to the end, following this theatrical display, Galileo still succeeded in smuggling to Holland the manuscript summarising his ideas, entitled Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, where it was translated, published and widely circulated. Galileo lived out his days reflecting and writing, on his small estate at Alcetri in the Florentine Hills, within sight of the formal gardens above his childhood home. Here, surely, he had frolicked as a youth, stealing the odd falling apple from the orchards, an image Isaac Newton used 
to such good effect before the century was out. This poem is about the stained glass artist, Evie Hone, whose studio and workshop were housed at the stable yard at Marley House. Patience and Order Her cane rests against the table where she sits, brushing blue cold paint onto the surface of a piece of glass. The striations in the first coat fade with the second, when fired and lit, she will have winter blue light with the silver quality of the waterfall in the distant wood. The seasons are turning, so is the glass and the fire, where paint slowly fuses to the surface to be held together with calm, the heart will bind them. We wait for the slow emergence of her vision, a window much larger than herself, revealing itself to us piece by bright piece. She's imagined it completely, sketched out a cartoon in watercolor, pastel, brush, and black ink, a window to be realized with patient order. For now, though, the shape of this one piece, the brush dipped into cold paint, layered and layered again, each coat deepening into dark indigo to be blessed with light. If anyone calls to the studio, I'll tell them to return later, saying, just now Miss Hone is deep in thought, working on the big windows. Journey Through Education From our window in the flat above the bank, Mam and I used to watch the children going to school every morning. She asked me if I would like to join them and I said yes, but I didn't know it would be every day. On the first day there were crayons, chalk and sweets in a tin, so I thought it was going to be okay. But the teacher said that I couldn't peel the paper off the crayons and we had to sit still. And anyway, as soon as the parents left, we had to put away the crayons. We were taught the ABCs, but I already knew how to read, so this was boring. There was a bold boy called Barry, and on the way home he tried to push cars down the hill. On a side road, a dark doorway. A witch lived in there who sold toffee apples on sticks. <laughs> 
he bought me one. The outside was sticky, hard and sweet, and when I bit through it cracked like ice, a sour apple underneath. I got sick and had to go to hospital. When I got back, I couldn't see the board. Something had happened to my eyes. I fell behind and had to sit with the dunces. We moved house and I went to a small school in Ross's Point. The teacher smiled a lot. She gave me crayons and Mauler to play with while she taught the older children reading and sums. I listened and learnt. I used to walk home by the sea. Sometimes it was windy and there were giant waves. Mam was at home with my little sister, but she said I needed to be careful not to be blown away, so I held on to the wall. When I got home, I ran up to the shed to lie down beside our cocker spaniel Brandy and her pups, snuggling into their wriggling bodies and the scent of straw and milk. We moved again, and the next school was in Sligo. The teacher's mouth was a straight line. She had a ruler that she used all day, slapping the children's hands. She told me that I was three books ahead of the others. I stopped doing homework and she slapped me as well. There was a girl in that class with a blonde ponytail, her hand up to give the right answer. Miss, miss, she begged. See, the teacher said, how clever and good this other girl is. I felt scruffy and messy beside her. The next school was in Dublin City and the teacher told us stories about Satanta. We made shields and swords, but the head nun had a big botha. We moved to South Dublin when I was 11. No slapping. A teacher taught us how to sing in harmony. A drama teacher taught us how to act. I won prizes. I am writing and tracking my journey through education with Jenny O'Farrell at the Teacher Artist Facilitator Training Programme, TAP, where artists and teachers learn ways to communicate and create together. The curriculum is taught through film, story, literature, art, drawing, music, drama, dancing and colours. Schools are so different now. But still, it all depends on the teachers. When I had a kind teacher, I thrived. A cruel or indifferent teacher and I failed. How important you are in a child's life. I say to Jenny, but she knows. Once, deep in the National Library, I was researching the death and funeral of Daniel O'Connell, and in the Freeman's Journal, I found this notice, which for me became a poem, a found poem, that I called Who We Were, Daniel O'Connell's Funeral Cortege, 1847. Drawn by six horses and led by mutes, O'Connell's triumphal car in mourning is to be supported by the vice presidents and the committee of the trades unions. 
the triumphal car is to be followed by the Carmelite confraternity and the confraternities of the Christian doctrine and the Society of St. Vincent de Paul and the pupils of the Christian schools and behind them the Christian brothers and clergy also. The physician, secretary and chaplain are to take their places immediately before the hearse with the chief mourners immediately after to be followed by the coaches of the cemetery committee which will precede the Lord Mayor's state carriage. Behind that, the carriages in the following order of archbishops, bishops, clergy, nobility, judges, members of the bar, the high sheriff, the under-secretary, the attorney general, the solicitor general, members of the House of Commons and gentry to be followed by the aldermen and town councillors of the city of Dublin, the deputations from other corporations and provincial towns, the commissioners from Limerick, Cork, Waterford, Kilkenny, Clummel, Drogheda and Sligo, the deputations of the total abstinence societies are to assemble in Britain Street, to be followed by the citizens of Dublin according to their wards and the wards arranged in alphabetical sequence with 200 stewards to preserve order. Persons on horseback are to assemble in Upper Sackville Street. When the last of the wards has passed, the horsemen are to follow four abreast at the head of the entire procession as arranged by themselves in the following order. Hosiers, cork cutters, brogue makers, boot makers, barbers, upholsterers, tin plate workers, plumbers, hatters, housesmiths, livery lace workers, carriers, paper strainers, tanners, cartwrights, marble polishers, horse shoers, bricklayers, skinners, wood sawyers, dyers, turners, Spanish leather dressers, carpenters, letter press printers, chandlers, carvers, cabinet makers, cabinet chair makers, house painters, stone sawyers, butchers, woolen operatives, coach makers, shipwrights, plasterers, coopers, rope makers, brass founders, slaters, tobacconists, nailers, flax dressers, bakers, basket makers, tailors, stonemasons, paper makers, book binders, silk weavers. On this morning's mix of new and recent archive scripts, we heard My Experience of the Educational System by John Forkin. That was followed by Home Movies by Barbara Scully. Then we had The House of Galileo Galilei by Justin McCarthy. Then Patience and Order, a poem by Grace Willents. 
And then there was Journey Through Education, a poem by Lanny O'Hanlon. And finally, Who We Were, Daniel O'Connell's Funeral Cortege, 1847, a poem by Grace Wells. The music this morning, that began with Amazing Grace, sung by Elvis Presley. Then we had Going Back, sung by Dusty Springfield. Then an extract from Music of the Spheres by Strauss, played by the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Willy Boskowski. Then Serenade No. 1 in D Major, Opus 11, by Brahms, played by the Gavla Symphony Orchestra. And finally, Lully Lulla Lalay, the Coventry Carol, arranged by Philip Stopford, and that was a special recording for Sunday Miscellany by Veritas Chamber Choir from St Columba's College. The choir was founded by pupil Monty Walsh. The choir director was Eunan MacDonald, and the sound mix was by Mark Dwyer. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You can find more from Sunday Miscellany and other RTE arts and culture programmes at rte.ie slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, you can go to the RTE radio player or the programme website rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.